Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Today is the long dreaded deadline for companies who manufacture e-cigarettes and other vaping related products to submit their pre-market tobacco applications, PMTA, to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In 2016, the FDA waved a magic wand and deemed vaping products to be tobacco products, thus subjecting life-saving technology to the same regulatory treatment as cancer-causing, heart-attack-inducing combustible cigarettes. Over the past four years, the FDA has strung the industry along on a nauseating regulatory roller coaster ride that delivered numerous change deadlines, obtuse headlines, and a propaganda war powered by hundreds of millions of dollars and a ginned up so called epidemic of youth vaping. Joining us today to discuss this inglorious deadline is Guy Bentley, Director of Consumer Freedom at the Reason Foundation and a fierce tobacco harm reduction advocate. Guy, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Thanks so much for having me. Well, today's deadline, the big question, do you think it's the end of vaping as we know it in the U.S.? It is the end of vaping as we know it in the U.S., but it is not the end of vaping or the vapor industry uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, what it does mean is a massively consolidated market. It means that many e-cigarette businesses that were providing um, great products to willing consumers will unfortunately be going out of business. Um, it does mean uh, a huge barrier to entry that has now come to pass for many companies and businesses trying to supply consumers with reduced risk alternative to cigarettes. Um, but it is not the total end of the vaping industry. There will hopefully be many businesses and many different products that will remain on the market to ensure that consumers have a satisfying alternative to cigarettes. Right, now a lot has happened today for us to talk about, but the first thing I wanted to do was kind of put this in context for our viewers. I went up to FDA site and I found their database where the companies, the vaping manufacturing companies, retailers and so forth, that have all listed on FDA. And I believe that process was about two years ago when that started. And so there's over 3,000 of them. And we've put that together into a bit of a scroll. And there's over 3,000 of these companies. And we already know a lot of them are no longer uh, in business. And our question is, is how many of these companies will still be in business in a year from now? And Guy, we'll come back to this. I'm just gonna leave this scrolling. But I mean, boy, this is, this is a pretty shocking list to be seeing here. Mm. Oh, for sure. And it's, I think there have been tremendous efforts made to comply with this deadline and ensure that businesses and companies offering products to consumers can stay on the market. I know one of your previous guests, uh, Amanda Wheeler and uh, also uh, Azeem Chowdhury, uh, Lindsay Stroud at Safata, ma many other people, you know, have uh, made heroic efforts to help many companies and shops uh, comply with this deadline as best they can. Um, and thankfully, it looks as though that while this deadline falling will be the end, unfortunately, of many companies, um, but quite a few will have submitted products by this deadline. We may, when the FDA, as they've said they're going to do, publish um, a list of those who have filed PMTAs, PMTAs may run into the millions, which is 
totally unexpected by the FDA several years ago when I believe they said they expected there would be 25 PMTAs filed. And now they could be looking at applications in the millions. And what we did say, see from FDA only the other week is that there are 400 million deemed tobacco products in this country, each of which could submit a PMTA. If only a fraction of those submit a PMTA, it will create a, a huge bureaucratic nightmare for the Food and Drug Administration. Um, so while inevitably this will mean a consolidation of the industry, many uh, products and companies won't have filed application. They won't have had the ability, the finance to do so, especially amid um, the coronavirus pandemic, simply not having the ability um, to do the necessary research and so on that's needed to file these applications. Uh, there has been a tremendous effort uh, by many people in the industry to help uh, many companies and businesses to file these applications. So at least they may be considered by FDA and FDA has uh, explicitly stated that they will take into account individual circumstances such as the coronavirus pandemic and others in that they will understand that if not every T is crossed and you know I is dotted, that there may be room for discretion there. So there is some hope that this isn't going to be the absolute destruction that it would have been, and many of us were saying it would be several years ago. But nevertheless, even with the best will in the world and the best hope in the world, it's still a pretty calamitous day. And that is for certain. And I use the term for certain. If there one, if there is one thing that is completely, totally void in this whole process is any certainty. And that's what drives me nuts about this is because, you know, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration really is the very first public agency. I mean, when, when, when FDA was created, there was no other agency of its kind in the United States. So when you think of the regulatory apparatus in the United States, the FDA is the trailblazer. Blazer. So, you know, you would think that their competency would be at the highest level, and yet there's been zero competency um, zero certainty in over the last four years. And I'm wondering, in terms of giving them a rating as a regulatory agency, what would that be? Oh, well, if it was out of 10, you've got to say, you know, I mean, zero is just like 10 is this sort of platonic ideal. Zero <laughs> will always probably be, be a bit harsh. But um, I mean, you've got to say one or two. I mean, what FDA has done, I mean, if we think about the whole process of PMTA, we've had promises of easing the burden of filing PMTAs. Um, to a large extent, this has not happened. Uh, we've had certain noises about discretion, um, you know, about um, ensuring that smaller companies can, you know, file applications in good faith, but not everything needs to be absolutely perfect. But the FDA has had years to uh, reform this process, to make it easier, to communicate it to businesses trying to honestly and in good faith comply with it. Um, so in terms of a regulatory agency trying to uh, guide and ensure those who it's regulating can comply with its own regulations, it's done an absolutely terrible job. Of, of communicating to good faith actors how they can work within this system. Uh, but unfortunately, that is one of the consequences of this kind of regulatory system in the first place. 
um, the PMTA process is a consequence of the Tobacco Control Act, um, finally uh, signed into law by President Obama in 2009, which set this whole train in motion. And of course, in 2016, we had all e-cigarettes deemed as tobacco products and therefore subject to FDA regulation. And before February two th 2007, um, all products on the market prior to that deadline are grandfathered in and so on. But products after that deadline, of which no major e US e-cigarette was, are subject to this application process. So instead of having a system of um, uh, consumer standards in which companies can uh, comply with regulatory and safety standards to ensure the products are up to snuff, that ingredients are um, as safe as they can possibly be, and so on. We have this bizarre Byzantine process where every single product uh, uh, needs its own application, even if they're largely similar, whether it comes to toxicology or a whole bunch of different things. We've been hearing noises that um, okay, the, some of this is going to be taken into account, but this is all far too little too late. And what this process has done now, we've had the deadline now, it passed at four, four o'clock this afternoon, is that what businesses hate more than anything is uncertainty. So if you are in this industry at the moment and you're deciding whether to uh, renew a lease, uh, you know, to, uh, to up, you know, the kinds of products you're going to apply through for a PMTA, you don't know which ones are going to get through, um, who's going to succeed in this process. Are you really going to take a gamble on this process that seems uh, tailor-made and designed only to benefit companies that have vast resources like the major tobacco companies like Philip Morris and so on? Um, you know, a lot of people will be saying, well, maybe this is the time to get out of the industry. And that's an, that's an absolute tragedy. It's a tragedy for those people who have um, put everything into the businesses they've created. It's a tragedy for the consumers that they serve. Um, and unfortunately, it, it benefits the incumbents who were instrumental in writing this law that put things uh, into place in the first place, which was primarily Philip Morris, who collaborated with the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids to bring tobacco products under FDA regulation. And we're seeing the consequences of that now in that uh, new smaller entrants to the market, competitive entrants, offering safer products to compete with the big boys are being systematically shut out of the business and shut out of the industry. Um, hopefully a lot of them will be able to stay on through the diligence and hard work um, that they've been doing in the last several months and up to this point. Um, but it's, there's just no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind, or I think anybody else's mind about what the consequences of this regulation will be. I believe I saw today some um, uh, investors analysts uh, in London um, concluding that this will uh, lead to a quote, white space in the e-cigarette or tobacco market. And by, by white space, what they mean is a decimation of large parts of the independent e-cigarette industry, and them explicitly saying that this would be to the benefit of traditional tobacco companies. And how is that in the interests of public health? Well, and how could it not be? We've already seen the data, Altria, or, or you know, just two months, a month and a half ago, came out with their uh, comments that obviously the slowing of their sales uh, is, I mean, it was speeding up and then now it's slowed down quite a bit. And that just means people are going back to smoking. And we know that. I mean, intuitively, 
these kinds of uh, things are going to mean more people are going to switch from vaping back to smoking. You've got the entire demonization process that's been going on. The virtues of vaping have been wiped away, you know, publicly. I mean, there are nobody, there's nobody on the streets. I used to see people vaping all the time in Vancouver. Nobody. I mean, and I've heard that when I was in Wisconsin um, in early August, I was overhearing people, you know, at a drugstore talking about vaping. And they're, you know, lamenting that nobody's vaping, nobody's, nobody's vaping anymore. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, that, that's totally, um, it, my, my own experience is very much similar. If I uh, meet people, you know, people I haven't met before, which is very rare in these days of coronavirus now, uh, but uh, a few months ago, I remember I was, uh, I, I was um, in that outside of the bar and I was chatting to somebody and they were talking about e-cigarettes and vaping and, and, and saying, oh, oh you, know, you, you know that's just as bad as cigarettes, don't you? And, you know, I yeah, had to politely point out that that was not the case uh, and tried as hard as I could not to go into a whole lecture about it. But that is the public perception. People are less informed about the relative risks of vaping than they were a decade ago. Um, people 10 years ago were right about this, of thinking commonsensically that this is, of course, safer for you than combustible cigarettes. Now the situation has totally reversed. We, thanks to the campaigns of demonization and fear-mongering about e-cigarettes, uh, people's perceptions of this product is co are completely warped. And I, I believe there was a survey just um, a few days ago of uh, US doctors showing that uh, I think it was more than 60% of them um, Oh, no, I think it was more than 80%, so beg your pardon, more than 80% uh, believed that uh, nicotine uh, either by itself caused cancer or was the primary ingredient in cigarettes causing cancer. So even amongst our own physicians, we have a misunderstanding of, uh, of, of nicotine. And the damage to tobacco harm reduction has been huge. I mean, as you say, we have people reverting back from e-cigarettes to traditional cigarettes. And even more importantly, those people who would have switched to e-cigarettes e and vaping from combustible cigarettes are now not doing so in the, the numbers they were just a few years ago. And this is a calamity for, for public health. Even though we have, you know, the United Kingdom, we always talk about the UK example of public health agencies trying to give a truthful representation of e-cigarettes and tobacco harm reduction. The UK's uh, Committee on Toxicology um, just uh, today or yesterday was releasing another review of e-cigarettes and you know, concluding again in line with the scientific consensus that they are safer than combustible cigarettes. So uh, it's very hard to not feel that you're you know, in an episode of Black Mirror or you know, through the looking glass where you are screaming just the absolute truth about something, an empirical truth you know, something that should be as easy to verify as many other empirical truths we know to be, we know to be the case. Um, but because of a incredibly well-funded operation uh, by tobacco control groups and with the complicity and compliance of many of our own public health agencies, this, is, this has not been the case and we're seeing the consequences of it. So let's have a little chat here. Uh, let's start getting into this guy, all right? Let's, let's go, let's dive in. Um, you know, obviously everybody that's in the industry, um, or an advocate, uh, and so forth, you know, has a concept around the absolute, I mean, inexplicable 
move that the FDA made in 2016 by deeming uh, vaping to be tobacco products. And that includes, I mean, obviously the, the big huge siren here is that a battery is deemed to be a tobacco product. They drip tip a piece of plastic. I mean, it's, it's insane. And so that's the heart of the crime, I call it here, that's happened. And I don't see any difference between that and the lying they've done on COVID, the lying they've done on Evali, the lying they've done on vaping, uh, on, on teen vaping. Because, I mean, those numbers, 30-day use, whatever. So when you just go through um, so many different areas here, I see public health is just willing to lie. And they use language uh, to do it. Like, not language to lie, but they actually use language as a weapon. They will say something is the opposite of what it is. They'll tell you, this is a tobacco product. It burns. Uh, uh, vapor is smoke. And it's clearly not. I mean, it's just technically not smoke, but yet smoke, 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 smoke. So, I mean, where are we at here? Because I think there's a massive corruption within public health, and we're seeing it at FDA. We are. And I think the, well, the, the, the mistake for, you know, e-cigarettes being deemed tobacco products, I mean, you know, this is as a, a long and complicated history going back to not just uh, the Tobacco Control Act, of course, but also um, a, a a lawsuit in the um, uh, in the uh, in the in, in the in the two thousands when mm. you know uh, vape companies didn't want um, e-cigarettes to be wanted e-cigarettes to be classified as a tobacco product rather rather than a drug. Right, um, <laughs> the catch twenty two there. That's right. Yeah, it was a, a total catch twenty two, but in. I mean, you're you're quite right. The 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 use of language in in these things is incredibly deceptive, uh, both by the FDA and public health agencies, but also by uh, journalists. For instance, I was uh, I was just seeing, you know, we've actually had some really great news about vaping today, Brent. Uh, we had the National Youth Tobacco Survey um, coming out coming out in the U.S. today, and it shows a a huge decline in youth vaping. Uh, and defining current use as, you know, at least once in the past 30 days, which, you know, can amount to anything from, you know, just a single puff. So I think we know that it's not the most, it's not the most reliable measure of, you know, who's, you know, dependent on e-cigarettes or not, but it's constantly used by tobacco control advocates to say there's a huge problem here. And this year we've just had today showing about a 30% drop in the percentage of youth, high school youth using e-cigarettes once a month. In 2019, that percentage was 27.5%. It's now dropped to 19.6%. So huge drop. Uh, and, you know, we will not see, you know, many people, you know, saying, okay, then this shows this alleged epidemic isn't as bad as we thought. Um, perhaps we should lay off the bans and the taxes on e-cigarettes and so on. You won't see that at all. I even saw a journalist, uh, I think it was from the Associated Press, tweeting that the good news was that uh, e-cigarette use is massively down, but the bad news is that use of disposable e-cigarettes has massively gone up. And I'm trying to work out for the life of me what... what I, well, that's I, I actually in the FDA's uh, headline. Yeah, and so they're I, I driving. Like, oh, they're driving the bus who, who on that. Cares? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, okay, <laughs> but use is down, right? Uh, Correct. Are you, are you claiming that disposable e-cigarettes are more, more, more 
harmful than other e-cigarettes? Is there some particular reason why that's worse? Like the, the pattern of, of, of product use is somehow uh, and device is somehow, you know, implicitly invalidating or a massive cause for concern. Right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure why in any way that that's explained why that's a major issue. Right, right. Well, because they need something to bitch about still in order to, you know, uh, keep the whole train moving. But there's one key thing, Guy, and I'm going to throw this out at you. And this is the nature of anything progressive is they can never pat themselves on the back and go, job well done. We got it done. So they've got this done. They drop it by 30%, but, they, you know, you just can't have that. So there's got to be another problem that's with it and another thing that's got to get fixed. There's just It's never finished is what I'm trying to get at. They won't be happy until they pry a vaping device from the cold, dead hand of every vapor in, in the United States. Yes. I mean, the, the, the approach is that any youth use of this product um, above, you know, 0% invalidates the entire category. Um, the, the, the standard that has been set um, when it comes to this product is that any youth use invalidates all beneficial adult use. I mean, it's never put in those terms, but that is implicitly the message here. It is like if, if youth use is, you know, five, you know, going from it's 20% now, for past 30 days, if that drops to 15%, that's too much, 10% too much, 5% too much, 1% too much. And that will that invalidates all the millions of people who have used these products to quit smoking, uh, which by any rational person's standard would be absolutely ridiculous, but this is the world of tobacco control. And unfortunately, um, the advocates of tobacco control, the supporters of the PMTA process, um, will need to find a justification for supporting this process and for eliminating large parts of this industry. And you've, you've, see, you've seen it already, you know, that Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids and many other groups have said, okay, the PMTA deadline is coming up or it's passed, and the FDA needs to, as much as it can, clear the market of any products that haven't submitted PMTAs or PMTAs that are not you know, uh, absolutely pitch perfect, all need to be withdrawn from the market. And what they are not talking about is we've seen youth smoking rates decline to a record low. We've been told for years this would renormalize smoking, that there were gateway effects going from anything from making it three times more likely for you to smoke to, I believe, one that one very infamous one that said it was 86 times more likely for you to smoke. And again and again and again, Youth smoking is record low, and now we have youth vaping going down. But uh, and we still have adults quitting these products. But unfortunately, as you brought up earlier, we're seeing older adults who are using these products successfully now reverting back to smoking. And the idea that these consumers were going to, uh, if they had tried nicotine patches or gum, uh, were going to quit with those methods is patently ridiculous. They specifically chose e-cigarette products because those other pharmaceutical things were not appealing and or didn't work. Right. Well, you know, I have to say that obviously living in Canada, we cover this issue obviously internationally and what happens in the U S spills over obviously everywhere. 
And, uh, you know, the vaping, uh, the epidemic started all, you know, undid our regulatory framework that we had here that made vaping legal and same issues, the same complainers. And then following that, we had Evalley and the vaping related lung illness. You know, and at that point, I'm actually seeing ads today in my email from my home vape shop. So this is the vape shop that got me off of cigarettes in 2015. And, you know, played a key role, actually, in, in helping us start our coverage in this file. And, you know, and they're selling off all of their juice that's still, you know, at 48 uh, milligrams, right? Because we've got a nicotine cap in British Columbia that drags it down to 20. So that's like, yeah. that's like and I use 48. I mean, I was a two-pack-a-day smoker just a few years ago. And so I use 48. Well, I got to go from 48 to 20, and I have no choice. And it's because of what? is is the issue it's 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 maddening as a consumer i mean i'm i'm livid it's 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 totally maddening and also one of the things to say about this brand is why this pmta deadline is so devastating is that i mean i hope that many vape shops and so on will continue to thrive and prosper and that we will have enough pmtas on the market that at least they can many products can stay on the market for at least a year and hopefully longer if um, FDA does the right thing and does have some discretion over this, is that the, the reason that vape shops and this independent part of the sector is so important is that, you know, vape shop, these are small businesses and local communities contributing jobs, contributing revenue by making it an enjoyable, safe place to help give up smoking, to build a sense of community, build social capital. There's there's lots of other things other than the actual um, buying and selling of the products that vape shops and the independent e-cigarette industry provides. I'm totally in favor of, uh, you know, tobacco companies and so on selling reduced risk products. The, the more, the better. That's That's fantastic and good luck to them. The problem is, is that this part of the sector, which provides a very different value proposition, to many consumers um, beyond just, you know, buying an e-cigarette in a 7-Eleven or so on, you get advice, you can try different things, there's more variety, there's more flavors, there's so on. And as we know from actually, you know, we've had this evidence for a while, but even academic research this came out, came out this year um, by um, Abigail Friedman showing again that those who quit with flavors other than tobacco are more likely to give up cigarettes. And that that is, of course, the main part of any vape shop's existence. That this different value proposition, was, which was extremely successful, is that part of the market that is being destroyed by these regulations. So if people who are not familiar with this issue think that, well, I'm in favor of consumer safety regulation. I don't want you know Wild West cowboys coming in here with products that aren't approved. No, all these companies are willing to, to comply with con basic consumer safety standards to ensure that their customers and the general public is put in a good place. The problem with this particular regulation and this deadline that we're seeing is that it's that part of the market, that independent part of the market that is hit most. And so if you think you're hitting big tobacco with this kind of regulation, you're barking up the wrong tree. This regulation was written by Big Tobacco in compliance with Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in a sort of Washington, D.C. swamp alliance that would make Baptists and bootleggers blush. 
Um, so anyone who thinks that, oh, I'm, I'm being for the kids and against big tobacco by saying today is a great day and the FDA is doing the right thing, you could not be more wrong. And not only more wrong, but clearly FDA, it's not even clear what the FDA is actually doing here because they, it's going to be a gray market. Like your colleague at Reason, uh, Jacob Solom, Sullivan, Solom? Yeah. Solom, right. Yeah. yeah. That's Yeah. Um, which, by the way, you got to help me get him on the show because <laughs> I really want to get him on the show. Um, but uh, yes, sorry, and I digress there because uh, he wrote a great book. Uh, what is it? For Your Own yes. Good. For Your Own Good, History of the Anti-Smoking Movement. Wonderful yeah. book. It's a wonderful book. And I mean, I think, I mean, it nails it. Like long before e-cigarettes is just, the, the, and long before the nanny state is even really the term, just the kind of fascistic attitude of public health he captured perfectly in that work. And it's for yeah. your own good. And you know what? That's the same kind of statement as um, be safe, you know, like uh, better safe than sorry. You know, all the safety language that we've seen that, you know, put a billion people, you know, behind doors, whether you agree with the lockdown or not. I don't. But there you go. Um, I think that it's wrapped up and enmeshed in in this public health power that's being exercised right here. And I think that e-cigarettes gave them an opportunity to exercise a muscle. Let's not forget that it was only a year ago this week, the day after Labor Day, that the Michigan governor came out and tried to ban vaping. And that was the start of the whole ball rolling. And what she had done and what the other governors had done is went straight to their public health legislation to see what executive powers they could have to take away the rights of their citizens. And six months later, they used that exact same power with COVID. I'm not saying conspiracy, but I'm saying it's a muscle that gets exercised. And when unaccountable regulatory organizations with the power to quarantine you and to take away your civil liberties are exercising that muscle, that's a danger. And they sure in the heck did that a year ago this week with e-cigarettes. Oh, totally. And, th and this is the thing with public health, Brent. Public health needs to be really clearly defined, really clearly defined. We can't just say public health involves anything that may have a positive or negative impact on somebody's health. That includes everything, uh, absolutely everything you do in life, every business interaction, every consumer interaction, that could be bracketed under public health, if you consider it that way. Real public health is what we're dealing with right now, which is a contagious um, uh, disease and an epidemic. The policy responses have varied by country and so on. And you know, there's all sorts of debate about the effectiveness of, uh, of various policies and the other. But when it comes to things like e-cigarettes and labeling, you know, e-cigarette use amongst uh, some youth occasionally an epidemic. We see the conflation of language that you spoke about earlier that has been such a disaster. And you quite rightly bring up the Avali epidemic uh, or the Avali the <laughs> lung injuries rather, um, which was such a problem and governors using executive powers to then unilaterally ban these products. And, you know, we now find that, you know, a colleague of mine, um, uh, Jacob Rich and uh, Je and Jeffrey Myron, who's um, uh, affiliated with the Cato Institute and is um, also uh, on staff at Harvard University, ran the numbers on the concentrations of uh, Ivali injuries and deaths uh, by state which legalized, uh, um, which had legal or prohibitive marijuana. So concentration per head of population. 
And unsurprisingly, we found that uh, the concentrations of Iwali injuries and deaths were far higher in those states which had, which had still had illegal marijuana. And in fact, we had two papers this year, two, uh, come out confirming that analysis. Um, so it, it is, again, we see this is a consequence of prohibition. But on, and the CDC finally, after months and months and months uh, of pretty much everyone who was on top of this issue, knowing what the cause was, knowing this was illicit THC cannabis products that had been adulterated with vitamin E acetate. And we had known this for a long time, both by, both by the data CDC was publishing and by the wonderful investigative journalism that uh, Leafly did. Yes. Um, which is a, a, a wonderful news organization covering the marijuana industry. Um, but it took an, up until January for the CDC to say that, uh, no, you don't need to stop all vaping if you, want to, if, if you want to avoid these injuries. But even after they said that, a morning consult poll came out not too soon after that, showing that the majority of respondents still said that Juul was the uh, responsible for these injuries, not THC products. And they were given the option to choose between the two, and most had not. And the CDC has not tried to publish, not tried to make the public aware of this information, not tried to say that, oh no, if you're worried about getting this kind of lung injury, it's not because of the nicotine vape, it's because of something else. No effort to educate the public whatsoever. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it, it's become you know a farce of itself. As I say, you're in a sort of black mirror episode of the truth just being totally, you know, uh, oblivious to all those who have the most who have the most power to impact what consumers and people do. Well, absolutely. And again, on the language side, we're talking about the CDC here. They had a definition of e-cigarettes for years that did not include cannabis-related products and so forth. I mean, so to, to use e-cigarettes in, in any of that, you know, discussion of Evali, and Evali, by the way, just to use that acronym, you know, is designed. My mom texted me the day that CDC came out with that because it just, you know, permeated through mainstream media all the way through Canada and everything. My mom sends me a note and goes, oh, I see, there, I see that Evali is a disease now. And I mean, that's insane. And it's, all, it's purposefully done to do that. And, you know, the e-cigarette definition, they just let that get all loose. And for, you know, it took them a while before they cleared that up months and months and months. You had said when you were on the show in December that you were uh, working on uh, a FOIA request, maybe, I believe it was with, with some other people with regards to the CDC. I mean, let me ask you a general question. And if you've got anything on that, that'd be great. But any chance in your mind that the CDC will be held accountable for circulating that disinformation? Well, I'm still, we have filed several FOIA requests to CDC with regards to the, the um, Ivali uh, debacle. Um, we have not received any information yet. They have been received. Um, FOIA requests take some time, as uh, some of us know, so, some more time than others. Uh, but hopefully we will get responses to those and try and shed, you know, some more light on what was going on at the CDC during this crisis, they had a whole unit that was set up to investigate this. This was one of the biggest stories in public health for months and months and months on end. Um, and I'm afraid, you know, a lot of people, how much you blame you want to assign them or not, but a lot of people in the media took a lot of what the CDC said just totally for granted, um, didn't bother arguing or questioning it. 
and then when the facts did come out, did not write updated articles or didn't bother to cover the story um, as ferociously as they had covered it when it looked like a crisis for the nicotine e-cigarette industry. Um, you know, so so it's it's been a sad story all around. But you know, it's it's interesting now we're talking about you know the, the Ivali and the marijuana side of this. I think you know applying this to the situation with PMTAs. I think because of coronavirus and so on, that this story hasn't got as much play as it would have in normal times, let's say. Um, and so many people may be looking at the situation happening with the e-cigarette industry and saying that, oh, well, you know, this applies to them. You know, it may be a, might be a nightmare for tobacco harm reduction. We may have fewer people quitting smoking and so on, but it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect my life or so on. I would say to people, particularly those who are consumers of marijuana or work in the marijuana industry or are campaigning for the repeal of um, laws against marijuana use and trying to finally end this, you know, nightmare of the war on drugs we've had for many years. This is exactly what will happen to the marijuana industry if they are not careful, um, as happened to the e-cigarette industry. You know, so it's not just people who are consumers of nicotine or use e-cigarettes who should be concerned about the way FDA and Congress has regulated the e-cigarette sector. This is a model of bad regulation that could be just as easily applied to the marijuana industry. And I think unless people argue against it, it will be applied to the marijuana industry. And unless people point out the flaws in this regulation and legislation, it will impact marijuana users just as much as it's impacting the users of e-cigarettes. So if people think this is just something confined to the narrow field of tobacco harm reduction and vape shops and so on, not true. The same groups who put in this draconian legislation against e-cigarettes will do exactly the same for marijuana. And then we will have, you know, before we've ended drug war, drug war 1.0, we'll have drug war 2.0, right. but just in a different form. So this this debate, Brent, you know, I think, as you said before, goes far beyond the e-cigarette sector. That is true. We had uh, Ethan Nadelman on, who was the um, founder and former director of Drug Policy Alliance, which is the big organization worldwide that you know has really been pushing back on the drug war. We had him on in December. I pulled out a little clip because I felt it was appropriate for us to listen to that today. So here we go. We're going to see people not just getting arrested, but even going to jail for violating the laws against vaping. You're going to see people, you know, who essentially are trying to protect their health to, to, in, in a harm reduction way that's proven by science, by switching from smoking to vaping, you're going to see those people and the people who supply them and market to them being arrested. So this really truly is a war on vaping. Is I think there's a decent possibility that we could be witnessing the beginnings of the first great drug war of the 21st century. If we make it fully illegal, you're talking about creating a global black market that will rapidly be worth many hundreds of billions of dollars. You're talking about tobacco trafficantes replacing the narco trafficantes. You're talking about police agencies and dedicated 
you know, tobacco enforcement agencies. You're talking about widespread drug testing in our society. You're talking about demonization and stigmatization of people. You're talking about parents having their kids ripped away from them at birth or, or young kids because they smoke cigarettes in the house. I mean, you're talking about that's what we had in the illicit drug area. And it was a horrific and remains a horrific violation of human rights in our own in the United States and still to some extent in your country, in Canada and around the world. We're looking at that being a real possibility because wars on drugs feed so many interests. They feed the media interests. They feed our need to have a boogeyman and to stigmatize and demonize others. They, as the as the class composition, as the as a as a class of people who consume these drugs gets lower and lower, relatively speaking, the, the willingness of the rest of society to demonize them and persecute and prosecute them becomes ever greater, right? Because they're no longer, quote unquote, our people. So I think we're, this is a real possibility. And I'll be damned if I devoted you know, the last 30 years of my life in part to legalizing marijuana and trying to end the war on other illicit drugs, only to be you know, stepping down now and witnessing the emergence of a great big new drug war, which would do as much or more harm than those other ones did in the last century. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think, I think Ethan makes a fantastic point. Uh, I mean, you know, you have still 34 million adult smokers uh, in this country. You have 13 million e-cigarette users, many of um, some of which are dual users as well. So there's some cross-cutting. Um, populations among those. But this is a market of tens of millions of people um, use, using this substance. And the more and more you prohibit it, you will see the consequences as we saw with the war on drugs. That is just an inevitability. Uh, and, you know, we think in this country that we've become more progressive about this issue, particularly as it comes to marijuana. And even, and even you, know, you know, some talk about, you know, being having a more liberal attitude towards some other drugs. But we're taking this total reverse position with nicotine which is completely bizarre because it's one of the more benign drugs you could get in the category of, uh, um, of drugs that are targeted by um, law enforcement and FDA and so on. You know, we've seen this story played out a hundred times and, and the result is always the same. Again, it's, you know, always Einstein's definition of madness. Um, so, but what's so infuriating about this is that we're going to be launching a war, a war on drugs uh, against uh, against nicotine, but particularly against e-cigarettes, which are the <laughs> the form of product getting people off of the harm of the, the more harmful drug, which is cigarettes. So you know we you know we have this you know it's whenever we talk about e-cigarette taxes, you know there's they're often put in the category of sin taxes. E-cigarette taxes on sin taxes, they're virtue taxes. They're, they're, they're taxes on you doing the right thing, uh, you know, in, in, in the view of what your legislature is supposed to be doing. But, you know, Brent, we've been generally pessimistic in this conversation because it has been a very bad day. But <laughs> I do want to say that, you know, there, there will be and have been hundreds of thousands of PMTAs filed. Lots of people have put a lot of work into this, and I really applaud all of them. And, you know, it's not the... We're not going to see all vape shops and businesses close tomorrow. A lot of people are doing a lot of great work on this. So the fight is not over. And if people continue, you know, vapors continue to organize, communicate with each other and lobby FDA in their legislatures and so on, that does not mean that this does not have to be the end of the independent e-cigarette industry. It can go on to thrive in a different form. It's tougher and so on. And I know it's been an absolute nightmare for those 
businesses and people have been trying to go through this process. But a lot of people have been doing great work on this, and, and I really hope they continue to do so. So it doesn't have to be the, the end of a great panoply of alternatives, successful businesses, and people supplying products to smokers trying to live a healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. And, and fantastic. And thank you for bringing that up at this point. I will jump around a couple of articles that have been out in the last couple of days, including uh, some stuff you've done too as well. This is Michelle Mitten and she wrote, it seems unlikely that FDA will reject all of the vapor industry's PMTAs, given that it has already deemed other lower risk tobacco products such as snus and the ICOS and has even approved them to make claims about having lower risk than smoking. So that is really good news. There has been uh, movement from the FDA to recognize that these products and to give them the marketing authorization to say that there is a lower risk. So that is definitely a win, but it's not if it's just Philip Morris, right? But it might not matter. And Michelle Minton writes, how many applications the FDA will approve and how long it will take is unknown. In 2014, the FDA estimated it would receive just 50 applications in the first two years, but with an estimated 400 million products on the market for which companies could file applications, the final total, total is expected to be hundreds of thousands, if not more. In fact, just one company, Minton reports, reportedly filed 330,000 applications for its 866 flavors prior to the deadline, with each application being potentially thousands of pages long. Jules PMTA, for example, was reportedly 125,000 pages. It seems unlikely FDA staff will be able to complete reviews in a timely fashion. There's a bit of Schrodenfreude there for me, isn't there? Uh, yes, there is, because um, FDA bureaucrats will be inundated uh, with these applications, these vast applications. Um, and but then again, you know, unfortunately, that could mean, you know, we've got a one year grace period here. Um, FDA could, you know, not enforce that grace period. And they said they might do not do that on certain small companies who are making good faith efforts. But, you know, you know, there is a bit of schadenfreude in there, but it's, it, it, it's still not a good thing. Mm. Uh, the, the, that the, this doesn't, you know, help business certainty. It doesn't help, you know, business owners know whether they're company is going to be around in five years and make long-term investments or, you know, vape shops renew their leases and so on. So while, you know, FDA may be, be suffering under the weight of all these applications that this ridiculous law um, uh, set the process in motion for, um, the process is still, is still a nightmare for companies trying to comply with it. And, you know, uh, at least, you know, many products and companies have filed applications, which means that, you know, they have at least one year, you know, more on the market and, uh, you know, can, and, you know, some companies can have, you know, filed applications and what, uh, and can say under special circumstances, we will fill in the rest later, you know, and there will be discretion granted in those areas. Um, but, but overall it's, it's still, it's still not looking good. And then, you know, we will have, unfortunately, there will be some players in the industry who will say that and will put forward to FDA very strongly that markets, that products that don't adhere to uh, perhaps the quality of PMTA application they've filed should be cleared from the market. 
you know, this is a profit-making industry. Uh, there is money to be made here, and companies are in competition with each other. And companies, you know, particularly larger ones that have an advantage here, will try and seek the elimination of competition. Um, I'm afraid that's just a just a fact of life. Um, I hope FDA doesn't uh, take those particularly seriously and see those for the self-interested statements that they are. Um, but uh, but there will be strong pressure, not just from the public health movement, to clear the market of many e-cigarette products that may not have filed PMTAs that are, you know, quite up to the standards of, you know, a million-page Philip Morris ICOS application. Uh, but there will be people in, in industry who will be arguing for that as well, um, purely to their own benefit, but not to the benefit of the consumer. Well, and that's the whole thing in the end, isn't it? When uh government moves in to regulate an industry that was not regulated. It's much like the mafia and uh, they extract what they can. And the other people that are being extracted, you know, being bullied or harassed and so forth, the ones that find themselves in favor with the government, or at least believe they're in favor, are going to argue against their fellow man, you know, or in this case, fellow vaping companies. Yeah. Yep, uh, that, that's totally true. I mean, it's how the T Tobacco Control Act came into existence in the first place. Uh, but, but, but you know, hopefully, I think what's what's different about this industry, Brent, is that you know, in many different kinds of other industries, we often talk about what we call public choice problems, which is you know, we have concentrated industries that impose costs on the rest of society because those because consumers are too dispersed and the cost to them is too low that it's not worth them getting together and getting rid of say the sugar subsidy for instance um which is you know a permanent feature of uh, washington dc cronyism because the cost of sugar is inflated for american consumers but it's not worth all of us getting together to shave off a few cents um uh, from our the sugar in our coffee uh, but the, the the farmers who get the sugar subsidy get millions and millions of dollars. So they are very organized and a concentrated interest. The difference here is, Brent, is that both ordinary vaping consumers and the businesses that supply them are very well organized, uh, do understand their own interests, and have actually been very effective in lobbying the interests of tobacco harm reduction and their own business over the last several years. There have been victories as well as defeats. For instance, yesterday, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida uh, vetoed a bill that would have banned all flavored vaping products, um, with the exception of those who subsequently received a PMTA. And he vetoed that after a fantastically concerted, vigorous campaign by you know uh, Florida uh, vape shops and consumers and and others who who really campaigned and wrote about this and you know and as you see on the screen uh, great florida legislators who wrote to the governor and made the case and so on so organization activism it does work it does serve a purpose so there are there have been victories as well as defeats so and the pmta process now is you know as we've been saying it's bad but it's not as bad as it would have been a few years ago if the vaping community and vaping businesses and consumers didn't organize to put pressure on FDA and HHS and the White House and others 
to make sure that it wasn't as bad as it otherwise would have been. So, you know, there's a great lesson here in that, you know, an industry can survive and thrive if it has mobilized consumers and mobilized producers to really put pressure on governments and regulators to say that, you know, we're, we're not going to put up with the way things are. Things can and should be changed. Now, Jim McDonald from uh, Vaping 360 had posted something with regards yesterday, an update to a great story. By the way, everything we're showing, obviously, you can find on Regulator Watch. It, we curate it there, and then you can jump to the original. Um, Amanda Wheeler, who we had on the show um, last month, and who's done so much to uh, help um, independent companies you know, and small businesses fight uh, for the PMTA, she just posted, um, Happy Doomsday, everyone. We survived. Keep going. Don't ever give up. We do not lose. We don't quit. And uh, what had happened here was is that um, FDA had sent back them a note and said, I guess, that their PMTA has been recognized that it's been submitted. I guess so it's in. So that, I guess, triggers that year grace period. Yes, as, as long as it's, um, I have to look, yeah, as long as FDA accepts it for review, mm -hmm. then it will be uh, subject to the grace period. Well, that, that's, that's great news. That's what um, Amanda was saying. And yeah, it's, uh, Amanda has been doing really fantastic work on this. And uh, I was, um, you know, fortunate enough to um, share the stage with her at a rally we had in DC um, just this weekend, um, you know, protesting against the PMTA and she was making all these compelling points and she's done a huge amount of work and many other uh, of the other people who are sharing the stage have done the same in trying to make sure that this isn't the the vapocalypse that it wouldn't that it was otherwise going to be and many others have worked incredibly hard to make that happen as well so exactly as you say brent and i think there's there's great there is hope to be taken from today both from you know what amanda's been doing the number of PMTAs that you know we'll see hopefully soon, the number that have been filed, but um, also these great statistics of seeing youth vaping going down very much, and uh, uh, by you know a, a huge percentage, around a third, um, youth youth vaping decline, uh, and there's no other way you can spin that. Uh, strangely, we didn't have the numbers on youth uh, combustible smoking. Um, which is mm. which is somewhat strange. Hopefully, we'll get those numbers soon. Um, but hopefully, this is a can be put in communications and saying that you know, youth vaping use is not an intractable permanent problem that's always going up every year. And every high school kid in America is going to be addicted to this product. And not only addicted, but nicotine is far more dangerous than we thought it was, which is of course all nonsense. Um, that you know, things can change. And you know things can change to get youth vaping down and have a thriving market for adults, which is just what everyone wants in the end anyway, or that most people want. Of course, we know that unfortunately, the kinds of people who have been crusading against this industry don't want that at all. Uh, they would they, they would rather this industry was decimated regardless of the effects on public health. Um, the, I, I honestly believe Brent, these these people would rather there were more smokers in America and have the e-cigarette industry destroyed rather than have a thriving e-cigarette industry in America and a much lower smoking rate. So um, let me quick, let me quickly add why I think that is the case and then you let me know if, if there's anything there. And that's because they were dragon slayers. They had to create, they created big tobacco as an incarnation of great evil, right? It was a great 
great corporate evil, which ties into anti-capitalism, which a lot of our guests have mentioned over the years. Um, even public health guests that have been on have said, you know, there's kind of a little bit of anti-capitalism around, around this whole thing. So is it the fact that they don't want to allow big tobacco any redemption? Because if they were to, you know, do e-cigarettes in any meaningful way, um, like there's some room for redemption for big tobacco. Could that be part of it? Like, why are they so, you know, maniacal about it? It's not. It could be a part of it. It is a part of it by their own their own statements. Uh, this is, you know, they, they they explicitly say this out in the open. Uh, you know, there's no there's no um, beating around the bush or hiding this. I mean, the the main purpose of these groups is, and yes, you, as you say, they are fundamentally anti-capitalist. Most of them, because they think consumers make uh, the wrong choices. Uh, because consumers don't know what's in their best interest. Somebody like me who, you know, switched from smoking to uh, vaping, uh, I made the wrong choice. I should have either quit cold turkey or used a pharmaceutical product and then quit that. I mean, I, I make the wrong choice by using nicotine in the first place. They would also say completely the same with alcohol, marijuana, gambling, any, any, any product that could uh, conceivably give anybody any pleasure. Um, and anybody could make a profit out of. Um, the, the, the main purpose of these groups is nothing to do with uh, reducing smoking rates or improving public health. It's with destroying companies. Uh, they have a vigorous dislike of these companies. Um, now, you know, this, this is a broad generalization. Of course, there are many people in tobacco control who, who are you know, on the side of the angels on this, who do support tobacco harm reduction and really care about people's health um, and, and so on and so forth. You know, that, that that is completely true. But when we're talking about the big players here, you know, Michael Bloomberg's groups and so on, Michael Bloomberg could care less if, uh, about my health or anybody else's. Um, Michael Bloomberg just doesn't like what other people are doing. Uh, he, he finds the choices of other people offensive. Um, and, and, and so do many of the people who, um, who rely on his beneficence. Uh, and, you know, they're not, they're not going to stop. They're always going to find something else to do. If it's not e-cigarettes, it's going to be marijuana. If it's not marijuana, it's going to be soda. It's going to be gambling. It's going to be food or whatever. You know, there's, there's, there's no stopping the, these people um, in, in their little crusade. But they have to be shown for basically the charlatans and fraudsters that most of them are. What connection is there between those people in public health or in the nonprofit, you know, public health, you know, industry and so forth and the COVID people, the people who push COVID? Well, I think, well, I, well, I didn't quite know what you mean by pushing COVID. Uh, it's the, the, uh, they're, they're two very different wings of public health, right? Uh, there's you, people who work in epidemiology, work with infectious diseases and so on. Um, that's what I consider basically real public health. Uh, this is totally divorced from basically the fake public health people uh, who receive millions of dollars to conduct a study saying that, you know, the color red on a triangle makes kids want to smoke. You know, that, that, that's all fake nonsense, all the rest of it. Um, when we're talking about the public health response to COVID, uh, you know, this has been, you know, it's a, it's, a very, it's a very tough call because we, I don't think any of us know what the right response was. Uh, I 
I tend to think that the initial lockdowns were a mistake, but I want to be very specific about what I say about lockdowns. By lockdowns, I mean basically the very strict ones in which you know you basically had to have government authorization to leave your home for a certain amount of time, etc. Um, I can understand why that was done. It was a panic. We didn't know very much about it, and so on. The, the, the problem is many public health people who had a lot of trust placed in them started making very silly mistakes about COVID. For instance, saying that uh, certain kinds of political protest uh, didn't uh, weren't convectors for disease, uh, but other political protests were, and that you know you can go to a, a a protest and shout and scream and so on, but you can't go to a funeral in the open air. That's when many public health people did discredit themselves, and that's a real shame because what we really need is public health people who have great expertise in these areas such as infectious diseases and epidemics and so on. We I want to be able to trust those people. I'm not an uh, a specialist in this. I want to know the advice I'm receiving is trustworthy and how I should act and behave and, you know, washing our hands and face masks and all the rest of it. We want to know that the advice we're getting is reliable as much as it can be. All human beings are flawed. You know, we, we hope for the best of the scientific processes, the best that we have. But unfortunately, I, I think that, you know, some people did let themselves down in this in this COVID crisis, not all of them. But in terms of the relationship between, you know, the tobacco control people and the, you know, uh, mainstream epidemiologists, people looking at the evidence base for COVID, I mean, they are, many of them are, you know, a thousand miles away. Uh, right. you know, the, people, the people dealing with real infectious diseases like COVID and malaria and AIDS and so on, um, these are people who are uh, far more, credible, even if they sometimes come to the wrong conclusions, than the people who spend their days worrying about the shape of a mango-flavored, you know, e-cigarette pod. Yeah, the mango-flavored e-cigarette pod, absolutely. <laughs> so we're going to, we've got a couple more questions. We're going to go a little past the hour here. Again, just to make sure everybody understands what we're doing, uh, this list of companies that we've been scrolling on the screen throughout the show, there's just over 3,000 companies that had uh, identified themselves as vaping companies, you know, manufacturers, blenders, you know, e-juice producers, that kind of thing. If you were involved in vaping, you wanted to get your name onto this list with FDA. Um, and, and that was the first step of the process uh, for PMTA. How many of these companies, this is still scrolling. I haven't stopped this. This is still moving forward. Um, you know, it's going to be about an hour, actually. So it's going to stop soon here. So that kind of thing. And we already know a lot of these companies have gone out of business. A good handful of them. Some have gone into the gray market area, so they're forced to then operate in a gray market. So how that can be any good for public health is beyond me. And I think lastly, for somebody who is a smoker, I know that when I first discovered vaping, I had been familiar with it a little bit in 2007, like in the very early days. I had gone to Beijing. I was doing a uh, global e-sports uh, event. And, you know, we had competitions all around the world. And then we flew the finalists uh, to Beijing. And then we threw on this big e-sports, you know, computer gaming event. And I did all of the sponsorships and stuff for that. And so I remember being in Beijing 2007 and I bought these big cigars that were vaping cigars. And I mean, they were a wonder. I couldn't believe that. And I brought them home to Vancouver. Nobody had anything like that. 
And, and I was fascinated by it, but I never thought that it'd be something that I could use to like supplant my two pack a day smoking habit. And then somewhere along the way, by around 2015, before we started working on this file, um, covering this, you know, I went, I, I've got, like, they kept raising the taxes, like, two packs a day of cigarettes in British Columbia was putting me at, like, $26 a day. I mean, that's like a minor cocaine habit. So, I mean, I was like, I got to get off these things, right? And, um, and I was quite a panic about it, too, as well. And, um, you know, I, I thought about vaping. I saw something at the corner store kind of poked around on it. And then all of a sudden I was told, well, there's vaping retail specialty shops. I'd never even heard of that. This is just 2015. I'd never even heard of that. And I went into a specialty vape store and it was like Shangri-La of all the different devices and the, and all the different flavors and all the advice I was getting and everything else. It was fantastic. And then there was a taste culture that had was built around that. And there was community around it and all that kind of stuff. The main question I asked myself before I embarked on vaping as a way to quit smoking was how sustainable is it? Will I be able to get my vaping products down the road? Because the one thing the cigarette companies have always done is I was able to get my Rothmans blue in the US anywhere, Canada anywhere, UK anywhere. I mean, you know, at five in the morning, I can go get my Rothmans. Uh, or before that, Demorier, or if it was Marlboro, or something like that. And so I literally had to do, you know, an assessment on whether or not vaping was going to be sustainable. Five years later, I don't have access to any of the products I use anymore. Yeah. No, it, no, it's incredible, and it's a, it's a, it's an absolute tragedy. And if you and you put it very vividly, exactly, the you can go any time in the morning at Seven Eleven, whatever. The cigarettes will always be there. The cigarettes are always there. They're still there, and they will always be there. These are they. They, they don't need the application process. They don't. Well, if you if any of these companies want to introduce a new cigarette, they can do so very easily, much easier than a new than an e-cigarette can. So the cigarettes will always be there. So we've constructed a regulatory process where it's harder for an e-cigarette to get on the market than a combustible cigarette. Uh, and this is imparted to us by people who are allegedly wise, public-spirited experts. You know, very, you know, uh, uh, very, very up to date on evidence-based policy and so on. And this is the process they've constructed. It's it's absolutely crazy. And I think one of the things to point out is is this. It it marks Brent a an anti-innovation approach and current in our society which I think is undermining a lot of what is holding back a lot of human progress. Um, there's a wonderful book written by uh, Matt Ridley that came out very recently called How Innovation Works. And he has a small section on e-cigarettes. And not many people are familiar with, for instance, you know, we often look at the UK model and why e-cigarettes became so successful in the UK. Not many people know that story. And the reason why it happened is because um, to a large part was that uh, a guy called Rory Sutherland, who's a vice president at the advertising agency o Ogilvy, was having a meeting with uh, David Halpern, the head of the Behavioral Insights Unit uh, in the UK, advising the government on, uh, you know, behavioral policy, nudge policy, and so on. And Rory Sutherland took out his vape and was vaping, and David Halpern asked him, well, what's that? And, you know, Rory Sutherland explained to him, it's like, no, it's this new electronic product, it's much safer than a cigarette and so on. 
And David Halpern, you know, listened and took took this back and and said, and advised the, the then David government led by David Cameron, no, let's not ban these products. In fact, we should encourage them. And that's a wonderful, you know, way that you know the the UK got its vaping revolution uh, was just saying, oh well, this is a new thing, you know. It's and it's it's. E-cigarettes, when you think about it, when Hon Lick, the Chinese pharmacist who invented this stuff in 2003, the modern day e-cigarette, there have been attempts made to produce products like this, but his was the first really commercially successful one. And then you had thousands and tens of thousands of different adaptations and flavors and strengths and devices and so on. This is a classic innovation revolution that is great for consumers, but every innovation revolution produces backlashes, from people who are deeply skeptical of innovation and find innovation not an invigorating experience, not an exciting experience, but a fearful experience. Um, uh, and uh, unfortunately, that's what we've seen with the e-cigarette revolution. You put it very clearly with the products you were able to get just a few years ago, which with all the science we have now, all the data we have now on how much better e-cigarettes are, you know, the case is even stronger. Yeah. And you can't get down the road the products that you were able to get five years ago. That's, you know, a reversion. You know, we're going backwards, unfortunately, rather than going forwards. And unfortunately, it's happening in too much, too many parts of our life now. Innovation is slowing. Uh, you know, we're not benefiting from the technologies that we should be benefiting from. And e-cigarettes are a total example of that. Right. Well, one of the reasons and one of the people that has led the charge against e-cigarettes is our good old friend, Dr. Stanton Glantz from the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education from UCSF. Guy, if you were able to apply just a few words to describe the mendacity, if you believe there is mendacity uh, with Dr. Glantz, you know, who is he and, and what's the news today? Stanton Glantz is... Um an academic whose, prior, whose career was mainly based on the hatred of people who made different lifestyle choices than him, a falsification and manipulation of data, manipulation of the media to serve his private um, political prejudices, and hopefully uh, this will be the end of his career and the world of science, um, the world of harm reduction, and consumers will be better off for the lack of his presence, uh, which was a pernicious one that held sway for many decades and was given far too much credence during his life. And hopefully um, after his life, people will recognize um, quite what a vicious fraudster he was. Um, and we saw some of this last year, you know, a, a the retraction of a paper he had with, uh, a, you know, embarrassingly weak evidence trying to claim that e-cigarettes cause heart attacks. I think the same will happen with a paper he published earlier this year. And that's not to mention these uh, allegations of sexual misconduct uh, made against him. So um, it, it's 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 a good thing that he is no longer at UCSF. Um, I can only speculate, but I doubt it was voluntary. Um, but uh, so it's a it's a good day. Uh, what during this 
dark cloud that has been the PMTA deadline day, there is a silver lining that um, one of the people who has been just such a uh, unbelievably, you, you know, pernicious influence in this debate um, is no longer going to have an official position at an American university. Yeah, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars of government funding. I mean, he was the king of tobacco funding. Um, but though he's got a lot of people he's trained over the years. Yes, that is true. And there will no doubt be people willing to take up the mantle uh, of, of uh, Stanton Glance's profession. It's, uh, it's highly profitable. Uh, to uh, get involved in crusades against products that people enjoy. Uh, there will always be people willing to fund that, whether privately or whether getting government grants. Um, I think one of the most prominent is um, Bonnie Halpern Felscher um, uh, from Stanford, who seems to be taking on uh, Stanton Glantz's uh, mantle. Uh, she's been uh, testified before Congress. I've run into her in, you know, state committee hearings. Um, I believe she's in uh, child psychology or something like that, and um, ha has been a, a vigorous campaigner against e-cigarettes and tobacco harm reduction. Um, has a single-minded focus on essentially that you know anything that a child can do basically needs to be banned. That's as far as I can surmise her philosophy. Uh, when it comes to risk or when it comes to um, the, uh, the, the, the freedom of products to innovate. Um, and she recently had a paper uh, that came out and I believe it's a Journal of Adolescent Health claiming that uh, vaping made you five to seven times more likely to get COVID if you were a young person. Um, this paper was literally debunked within minutes of publishing. And uh, I believe there's already been um, I believe uh, a, um, a publication in Kios critiquing the paper. I know one of my colleagues at Reason um, is sending a, a letter to uh, the editor uh, incredibly soon, and we'll be doing work, further work highlighting the flaws in that study, which are sort of beyond belief that it was published. I believe it was published in, in something like 14 days after submission and can't have been reviewed very thoroughly. Um, so hopefully that will be protracted, but it got an enormous amount of media coverage and was a typical glance-like paper um, with its uh, <laughs> uh, incredulous conclusions and and uh, and uh, weak relationships and incredibly misinterpretation or willful uh, misinterpretation of uh, of data. So so unfortunately, this will not be the end. There are many people who, you know, will you know, be able to uh, put, spin things in whatever they, they, in whatever ways they want to serve their, their, their anti, anti e-cigarette agenda. And I'm afraid I think Bonnie's probably, probably falls into that category. It might be more competent at it too, at the moment. Now, the fact of the matter <laughs> is though, is that while Stanton Glantz has said he's retiring, I hear the scuttlebutt is, is that he's getting a cabinet position in the Biden administration. <laughs> That's where all the communists are going. <laughs> well, um, I don't think it would quite fit in with the uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 Me Too uh, uh, Me Too friendly presidency that uh, Joe Biden wishes to usher in. So I don't think a a, uh, a person of Glance's character will be invited uh, 
anytime soon there, no matter what uh, the, the scuttlebutt is on the side streets there, <laughs> there Brent. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we will have seen largely the back of Stunt and Glance, who, um, but I imagine there he'll have a few more things out before, uh, before he's done. Uh, most of which I imagine will focus on the marijuana industry. It's been an increasing focus of his, uh, uh, decrying the legalization of marijuana. Um, so I, I imagine, you know, this might be the the end of his main period um, as a you know crusader um, against the choices of others, but um, it won't be totally the last we've heard from him. Yeah, well, and that is uh, that is sad, and his legacy uh, will remain long past him. It was his research uh, that delivered the uh, secondhand smoke decision. You know, through public health, and then in and in, in the public, that gave the right. You know, that very first real move for government to be able to remove people's individual rights, and you know, and that research has appeared to be completely, totally bollocks too, as well. Yeah, I mean, the 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 second. Hold on, so let's be very careful here. I am doubting the secondhand smoke research. Does that make me a crazy conspiracy no, person? No. Absolutely not. And, and, and for those who are interested in this topic, uh, Jacob Greer wrote a wonderful article for Slate. Um, I believe this was a year or two ago, uh, outlining the, uh, the history of this. And, you know, for those who follow this, we've long known that, yes, of course, secondhand smoke can, uh, can, it can be harmful. There is, um, you, know, you know, exhaling cigarette smoke and lots of it and confined spaces and you're breathing it in is not good for you and does not have zero effect. But the problem with a lot of the secondhand smoke claims was things that I was taught in school, Brent, for instance, I was taught in high school that secondhand smoke is worse than inhaling mainstream smoke. Wow. Um, and you were told that, you know, you are secondhand smoke is, you know, even if you're exposed to it, just, you know, very generally, you can contract cancer. And that's just, you know, the evidence was wildly overstated. It was massively overstated, uh, one of which from a Stanton Glance paper. And of course, by there was a total scandal with uh, um, uh, two scientists, Ernstrom and Cabot, who were undertaking a study on secondhand smoke for the American Heart Association, I, uh, I believe it was, um, who did a major big epidemiological study on this. And they started to find that basically they could find no major detectable effect um, on cancer outcomes. from. And that was smoke. happening in real time while things nope. were... It was happening, and th but then their funding was pulled by the American Cancer Society. And so the only way they could finished the study is they got some money from the tobacco industry who funded the rest of the study and then when the study came out its conclusions were totally slammed as you know being big industry funded you know whatever right but, but right. the conclusions before every time there has been a major epidemiological study of secondhand smoke the, the first major ones we had in the 1980s i believe came from japan when they looked at uh, um, non-smoking wives and smoking husbands and tried to isolate right. the effect of secondhand smoke. And that appeared to show some effect. But then every time we did more studies on this, the effect got less and less and less and less and less, and and appeared to not be really a major problem. And exactly as you say, the secondhand smoke argument was used as a battering ram for all sorts of infringements on the liberties of business owners, on the liberties of consumers. Because of course, I would agree as a good libertarian, if you are causing a harm to me, 
then you should, you know, and I'm not participating in the activity, you know, you should pay a price for it or so on. But we were, we were told that, oh, you know, bar owners can't even allow smoking in their own bars. It's their own bar. And you can't even go in there as a patron and say, well, I want to go into a smoky bar. That's my choice. Because we're told, well, then the employees of the bar suffer that. Um, and we had a whole suite of labor laws, you know, introduced on this, that even if you want to be a bar that allows smoking or vaping or whatever, you can't because of your employees. So it was on the manufacturer of this mythical employee who can only get a job in a smoky bar uh, that then has to be protected from the rest of us who might want freedom of choice. This, this invented person who doesn't exist. Uh, for their safety, for their safety, the rights of everyone else needs to be infringed. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, the rights of a smoker obviously don't matter, and that was the battle. When you look at liberty in the United States, I see this as being like. I mean, there's no other example when you've got well, how many smokers were there? Had 50, 80 million, 90 million at the time, say two thousand or say nineteen ninety, when really the push happened. Two thousand and three is when the research came out. People forget that it's not that long ago that you were we were still allowed to smoke in bars and everything else. So, you know, as Ben Shapiro says, he goes, it's the waving your arms around rule, you know, the flailing your arms. I can flail my arms around all I want as long as I don't hit anybody with them, all right? And so that was the argument with secondhand smoke. You know, they tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. It wasn't until they could show that there was harm happening to other people that, uh, that they could then, you know, come down the hammer on it. That's right, uh, because most people, even though they didn't like a lot of smoke around them, and, uh, you know, a lot of businesses had you know, got rid of smoking in the workplace and so on. And that's totally fine. It's totally their decision. I have absolutely no no problem. Any private business totally has the right to ban smoking and say either go into a smoky area or, or go outside or so on. You know, that doesn't bother me one way or the other. The problem was the government intervening um, and saying that nobody could uh, uh, smoke in any bar for any reason. I mean, you know, it's... Um, you know, there, but for the grace of God, there are only a few cigar bars left in this country, really, where you can have a cigar, uh, uh, you know, which were, which were a lot of times given exemptions from um, smoke-free laws, uh, probably because of the clientele, uh, I suspect. But, um, but, you know, shows another sort of basic injustice. So, you know, the, the argument, this is where the anti-smoking, now the anti-vaping movement, basically reversed as you're sort of alluding to the classic liberal John Stuart Mill harm argument, where John Stuart Mill says, you know, as, as long as I can have freedom over my choices and my body, so long as I don't hurt you. And that is totally, I think, correct. Uh, but that was exactly, as you say, the key for the anti-smoking movement. It was making everyone else think, it was like, oh, these people are hurting you. They're hurting you either by their secondhand smoke or they're hurting you by healthcare costs they're inflicting on you. That was the way to really demonize people, just as drug addicts have been demonized. Yeah, yeah. And this is happening with smokers are basically second class citizens in the United States now. Um, and, and that has been a long campaign and an explicit aim of the tobacco control movement, as they called it, a, um, you know, denormalization in that, you know, awful, you know, Ugh. you know, de dehumanized language. Okay. So on that note, let's pull her all the way up here. The last question. Okay. Is there hope? Do you have hope? How is there hope? Dear God, why would there be hope? There is, certain, there is certainly hope. There is, I think, more hope 
today than there was, say, six months ago or a year ago, for yeah. instance. Um, in in that people, the people we've been mentioning earlier have done great work in trying to comply with the PMTA process. There was also great hope in the mobilization of consumers and businesses in this industry to continue putting pressure on the FDA. The, the pressure should not stop on the FDA now to reform this process and for people in, to, uh, in Congress to reform this process. The status quo does not have to be the status quo. It should be changed and it can be changed. So I think there is totally hope. I think we're going to have a, a more thriving market than we would have otherwise have had. Mm. I'll put it that way. There's no doubt the market is going to be consolidated. We are going to see business closures and failures. We've already seen them, as you've said. That is totally true. But it is not as bad as it could have been, which may not be saying much, but things still can be done to ensure there is a thriving market for consumers and industry. And as we saw with uh, uh, Governor DeSantis's veto of the tobacco flavor ban, there can be victories and there should be victories. There's still lots of fights to go in many states. You know, I believe, you know, there will be a referendum on California's flavor ban probably next year. I imagine that the signatures will be gathered for that. So the fight isn't over and it won't be over so long as there is a large market of consumers and business owners who are passionate about this subject and who won't let themselves become, as Ethan was saying, the latest victims of the war on drugs. So there is hope. Hope isn't dead. Well, that's excellent. It's good to hear. And from a person like you who is on top of things, that is good to know. Guy, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian.